They shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them. And they shall come again to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall abide in their coast on the south, and the house of Joseph shall abide in their coasts on the north. You shall therefore describe the land into seven parts and bring the description hither to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord, your, Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And the men arose and went away, and Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and come again to me, that I may here cast lots for you before the Lord in Shiloh. And the men went and passed through the land and described it by cities into seven parts in a book, and came again to Joshua to the host at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land unto the children of Israel according to their divisions. And the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families, and the coast of their lot came forth between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. And their border on the north side was from Jordan, and the border went up to the side of Jericho on the north side, and went up through the mountains westward, and the goings out thereof were at the wilderness at beth And the border went over from thence toward Luz to the side of Luz, which is Bethel, southward. And the border descended Adaroth Adar near, near the hill that lieth on the south side of the nether Beth Horon. And the border was drawn thence and compassed the corner of the sea southward from the hill that lieth before Beth Horon southward. And the goings out thereof were at Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath Jerim, a city of the children of Judah. This was the west quarter. And the south quarter was from the end of Kirjath Jerim, and the border went out on the west and went out to the well of waters at Nephtoah. And the border came down to the end of the mountain that lieth before the valley of the son of Hinnom, and which is in the valley of the giants on the north, and descended to the valley of Hinnom to the side of Jebusai on the south, and descended to Enrogel, and was drawn from the north and went forth to Enshemesh, and went forth toward Gililoth, which is over against the going up of Adummim, and descended to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and passed along toward the side over against Arabah northward, and went down unto Arabah. And the border passed along to the side of Beth Hogla northward, and the outgoings of the border were at the north bay of the Salt Sea at the south end of Jordan. This was the south coast, and Jordan was the border of it on the east side. This was the inheritance of the children of Benjamin by the coast thereof round about according to their families. Now the cities of the tribe of the children of Benjamin according to their families were Jericho and Beth Hogla and the valley of Kazes and Beth Arabah, and Zerareim, and Bethel, and Avam, and Pera, and Ophrah, and Shepher, Hamoniai, and Ophni, and Geba, twelve cities with their villages, Gibeon, and Ramah, and Beeroth, and Mizpah, and Shepherah, and Moza, and Rechem, and Erpeel, and Terelah, and Zelah, and Eleph, and Jebuzai, which is Jerusalem, Gibeoth and Kirjath, fourteen cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the children of Benjamin according to their families. And let's pray. Father, again, it's always a privilege, privilege to study your word. And Lord, I again ask that you would give us insight, that you would give us wisdom, 
and that you would make this time profitable and that our faith would increase and that we would grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse number one, the tabernacle is being moved from Gilgal and set up in Shiloh. And Shiloh is a central location in the nation of Israel or in the promised land. And we are told several times in the the books preceding the book of Joshua that the tabernacle, when they got to the promised land, the tabernacle was supposed to be set up in a place that God would choose. So no doubt God chose this place. Worship was supposed to be, it was always intended, and it was supposed to be central to the nation of Israel. Every thing was to to revolve around their worship of course there and uh, this location where that is being chosen at this time Shiloh is where the the ark of the covenant would remain for over 300 years when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 3 we we see that it is still there at that time and that was that was well over 300 years later now Psalm 7860 records that God eventually forsook Shiloh and and established Mount Zion in Jerusalem as the center of worship and as the place of the tabernacle. I I thought it was interesting as I looked through the maps and the the various Bibles that I have, I actually took out a ruler and if if you measure Shiloh relative to the furthest points of the nation, it is in the exact center of the nation of Israel, according to the description of the promised land at this time. In other words, if you were to measure from the very far northwest corner, which is in today modern-day Lebanon, and then you were to measure from the, the far northeast corner, it's the same distance then as the distance from Shiloh all the way down to the tip of Israel where it meets the Gulf of Aqaba. And so then later on, when the northern, the most northern part of the the promised land was lost, it was relinquished because Israel didn't maintain maintain control of it. Then the the center of worship was moved to Jerusalem, and they didn't lose any land at the southern part of the nation. And so then uh, Jerusalem actually is in the center of the nation of Israel. And God had said all the way through the, the, again, the books preceding this one, leading up to Joshua, that the tabernacle was always supposed to be set up in the midst of them, not on the outskirts or, you know, on the, on the peripheral, but it was to be in the midst of them. And, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I, I don't think I am. The God, it was always God's intention that the, the place of worship be easily accessible. And when we get to chapter 22, one of the things that we're going to see is that the, the nine and a half tribes become terrified of the Lord's judgment when they discover that the two and a half tribes have built another altar because they fear that the, the other altar is being built to give the, the two and a half tribes that are that have land on the east side of the Jordan River, the, the nine and a half tribes fear that they're building that altar as an excuse so that they won't have to travel to Shiloh. And, and of course, you know, when we get to that point, we'll see that that wasn't the case, but that was certainly their fear. 
but it was always intended that the the location was to be a central location and it was to be easily accessible so that that people would would go there to worship and of course if i think as i think about our own church you know we had this discussion quite a few years ago when we were discussing whether to to build uh, or to relocate and you know 40 years ago um, this location would have been considered West Omaha but certainly that isn't the case anymore if you look at the 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 entire metro area it's hard to pick a more central location than this i mean this is just pretty much right in the middle of it all and so I think that's very appropriate. This is a very easily accessible location. And I think, you know, that's really one of the cases that's being made here is that God is choosing to place his tabernacle in a place that is easily accessible. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and and we're going to look at some of these verses in which God is, is making this argument choosing the place where they are to establish as the center of worship. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, we will see in these verses that God is making it clear that there is to be one place of, one place of worship and one God to worship. Verse number 1, These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. And you don't want to overlook that little phrase in the middle of the verse, in the land. Most of the instructions that are given through the, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you, you find those references all the time because those are the instructions that really applied a little bit to when they were wandering in the wilderness, but more ultimately they applied to when they would eventually get into the promised land. Verse number 2, Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall, which ye shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek and thither thou shalt come. And notice there in verse 3. At the end of the verse, it says they are to destroy the names, plural, out of the, the promised land that they are, in which they are heading. And they are going to replace that in verse 5 with a single name, the name of their God. And that God is making it perfectly clear that they are to worship one God and they are to establish one place of worship. So he is to be worshipped exclusively. Verse 6, And thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and heave offerings of your hand and your vows and your freewill offerings and of the firstling of your herds and of your flocks. And there, this is the place that God shall choose, and there ye shall eat before the Lord your God and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto and your households wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And in verse 7 there, we, we, we find the word rejoice, and we also see that in verse 12. So they were not only to worship exclusively, they were to worship joyfully. 
Verse 8, you shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. For ye, for ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. And you notice the, the reference there to the, to the word rest. Shiloh means place of rest. That is ultimately where they are in Joshua chapter 18. Verse number 10. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the, in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when He giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause His name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord." So in verse 10, we see there that it was not only to be a place of exclusive worship, it not only was to be a place where they were to rejoice, where they were to worship joyfully, but there also is a place where they're going to be able to worship safely and securely. Verse 12, And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maidservants and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you, Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So again, God has made it clear that he has established one place as the center of worship. Now, turn to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, verse 17. It says, Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. God is, is making it mandatory that each male visit Shiloh, or the place of the tabernacle, at least three times per year. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty, or empty-handed. I mean, it's very clear there that they are to, that's the way that they are to demonstrate to the Lord that He has provided for them by not showing up empty-handed. Nobody could legitimately argue that God had not provided for them at all. Certainly God had provided for some more than others, but nobody was to show up empty-handed. Verse 17, Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord thy God which he hath given thee. So again, I, I think the, the case is, is made pretty clear that the, the place of worship was, was extremely important. And my conclusion would be, at least for me, that you know, when I am deciding where to live or where to work, uh, you know, whether a good church is available is absolutely important. I mean, it just has to factor in at the very top of the priority list, you know, in terms of where I'm going to live and where I'm going to work. If, if, if there isn't a place that I can grow and 
and worship the Lord with with other believers, then I, I think the, the the case is pretty clear that you know then I probably need to look elsewhere. Now turn back to Joshua eighteen one. We see in this first verse, it says, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together. It was important for everyone. Now, lest too much emphasis be put on the place instead of the, the people, turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, and we will see, I made, I made reference earlier to Psalm 78, verse 60, which tells us that God eventually forsook Shiloh and switched the headquarters of the tabernacle to Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 7, this is where we will see that the people were much more important than the place. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So, the the warning that Jeremiah is giving to these people is that the the place of Solomon's temple is going to meet the same demise as Shiloh if the people will not amend their ways, if they will not bring their hearts into a right relationship with the Lord. Verse 4, Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You know, the, the warning there is, you know, they, they had it all wrong. They thought that the, the place was, was, the, was the thing that was all important instead of their hearts, instead of their conduct. Verse 5, For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place. See, God wants their hearts first. That the place isn't so important. It's the people that God are interested in. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? See, God is saying, you're committing all kinds of wickedness and sinfulness in verses 8 and 9. And then he says, you come and stand, me, you come and stand before me in this place like everything is fine. And of course, you know, that's exactly what God doesn't want of us. He doesn't want us to come to church and act as though everything is fine. And then meanwhile, the rest of the week or whenever we're not here, we're living sinful lives that are full of wickedness. God wants us to be consistent. He doesn't want us to... to put on a, an act just when we're in a particular place. Verse number 11, Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, 
God says, here, here, look at Shiloh as an example. Where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And God destroyed it. Verse 13, And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not. And I called you, but you answered not. Therefore, I will do unto this house, the, the current temple, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. God's reinforcing the same argument. It's not the place that is all important. It's the people. It's the condition of the, the hearts of the people. Verse 15, And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the, fires, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast, and upon the trees of the field, and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. And we don't want to lose sight of that. It's The place is, you know, is insignificant. It's, it's the people that God is interested in. God will judge the place because of the wickedness of the people. Verse 21, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice. And I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. See, God isn't, isn't satisfied for us just to show up and be in a particular place, to sit in a pew. He wants us to obey His voice. Verse number 24, But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and the imaginations of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto, me, unto thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Thou shalt say unto them, this is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their, from their mouth. And you can turn back to Joshua chapter 18. So again, God is, is making it clear there that, you know, it, it's, the place was not all important. It was the people. It was the people that, that God was after. It was their allegiance, their obedience, their adherence to His word. And then lastly, in verse 1, we see that it says, And the land was subdued before them. And we know, certainly from the preceding chapters and the subsequent chapters, that there are still pockets of resistance among the Canaanites that are still there. But the point is, is that the land had been subdued enough to where everyone could come and gather at this assembly without any real threat of 
opposition because the, the Canaanites were really in, in, you know, in hiding and in, in retreat at this time. Verse number two, before we go on, does anybody have anything they want to, they want to contribute or add? Verse number two, and there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not received their inheritance. And all throughout this account, um, it, it seems like you know there's a lot of repetition, but the writer is really making it clear that God has been faithful to deliver on His promises. Um, there's there's a lot having to do with the numbers. I don't know how many times we've already read up to this point that the Levites did not were not given any land specifically to inherit because the the priesthood of the Lord was their inheritance. And notice there in verses 5, 6, and 7, it says, They shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall abide in their coasts on the south, and the house of Joseph shall abide in their coasts on the north. The writer is letting us know that Judah has already received his inheritance. Joseph, which on the west side of the Jordan River is the tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they've already received their inheritance. Then he reminds us again in verse number 7, which... You know, it must be repeated. I, I don't know how many times throughout the book. He's, he reminds us that the two and a half tribes had already received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And he's doing all that to let us know that everyone received their inheritance. That God was faithful. There are seven tribes that have yet to receive their inheritance. But everybody is accounted for. Everybody is being taken care of. Verse number 3. It says, And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? So this is where Joshua begins to chastise some of the, the tribes because they have been reluctant to go and possess what God has already told them, He has given them. Um, the word slack here means a persistent attitude. And this was, this was something that... Um, you know, as we use the expression today, you know, Joshua needed to light a fire under them. They were, you know, who knows, they were a combination of laziness and fearfulness, maybe maybe some of each, but but nevertheless they, they're not they're not going they're not going after it. They they appear to content to live off of their, their brothers. I mean they, they've probably got a pretty good thing going. They are you know, as some people have said, moochers, moochers and sponges. You know, they're, they let, you know, Caleb and his family uh, push out the Canaanites and the giants from Judah. And, and now they've seen some of the other tribes push out their, uh, you know, those that had resisted them. And, and they're, not, they're not very eager to go get their own land. But that's, in, in effect, what Joshua is saying to them. He says, go get your own land. Go after it. Take possession. And this type of thing, this, this uh, slackness, as, as the Bible calls it, this is a hindrance to unity. It's going to be more difficult for these other tribes to maintain a positive attitude when, when they essentially are looking at this situation and said, you know, hey, we've done what we were supposed to do. But those, you know, some of the others aren't, aren't doing their part. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Many times throughout the, you know, one of the commentaries that I have been using is, is by Dale Ralph Davis, and, and, you know, he keeps repeating the same phrase over and over. 
kind of stated different ways. You know, he says God's gifts do not cancel out human responsibility. And you remember maybe, you know, some of the, the ways he put it earlier was God's promises do not negate human action. We still have a part to play. We still have work to do. And God doesn't want people sitting around on the sidelines and always looking for somebody else to do the work. And that's what Joshua's doing here. He's having to get after these seven tribes saying, you, you've got to go after it. They don't seem eager to be independent. I remember when I was, I grew up living next to a farm until I was eight years old, and I remember that the, the, the guy that lived next door, he raised cattle. And when the calves were born, there was always a particular time when he would separate the calves from the mothers. And there was always a few that were really stubborn about not wanting to be departed from their mother. And, you know, he would generally only separate them for about a month or two so that they were, were to be weaned from their mother and they were no longer drinking milk. And but, but it seemed like every time he would let them back in with the mother, there's always a few that went back and then they started nursing again. And I remember one time he had this one calf in particular. And that thing, every time he would separate it for a month and then he'd put it back and then he'd separate it for a month or two. And, then he, and it just kept nursing. And it got to the point where that thing was about as big as its mother and it was still nursing. And he was getting really frustrated. And I'm just, you know, I'm thinking of that as I'm reading this story of Josh, because that, that calf just didn't want to become independent. And it kind of sounds like that's what's going on here. These tribes just don't want to become independent. Dave? Yeah, yeah, eventually they were. Yeah. Yeah, every, every one of them, it was, I think it's pretty clear that there were still Canaanites that needed to be driven out. So I think I think I think it seems clear that each tribe was responsible for driving out those. You know, they had gone through this seven year campaign and this seven year conquest where all of them, you know, as a group had driven out the, the, you know, the major resistance. But now there's just, you know, little pockets of resistance remaining. And I think it's I think at this point now, each tribe is responsible themselves for driving out what remains in the portion that they're going to inherit. Anyone else? And Deuteronomy 32.11, you don't need to turn there, but it says the, the eagle stirs up her nest. And a lot of people believe that what that is saying is that the eagle sometimes has to kick out the eaglets out of the nest because they just, they just want her to continue to come and feed them. They don't want to go out and, and, you know, make it on their own. And so there's a reluctance on some people's part to become independent. And notice in verse number 3, Joshua reminds them at the end of the verse, this is a gift from God. It's a gift from God, but yet they still have their part to play. They still have, they still have something that they need to do. And, you know, the fact that they are slack in going after it may probably indicate some, some ungratefulness on their part. You know, they're not really grateful to the Lord for what He has done for them. You know, it's almost as though they're saying, you know, you need to do more. You know, God has given them the land, and yet, they want the land without absolutely any bit of resistance remaining. And the longer they wait, the more difficult it's going to be. You know, the longer they wait, the, the more the Canaanites can regroup and, you know, have a resurgence and gather back their confidence. So they're just making it more difficult on themselves by waiting. They're letting the opportunity slip away. So in verse number four, Joshua puts together a strategy for 
encouraging these these seven tribes to to gather to grab their land. He decides that that he chooses 21 men that are going to, that are going to be go, they're going to go out and do a survey and analysis of the remaining land. And you know, he chooses three from each tribe. We know there's 21. Now, we don't know exactly how they go about this. You know, we're not told specifically, do they go out in seven groups of three or do they go out in three groups of seven? Uh, seems highly unlikely that they would have gone out individually because that would have put them at, at great risk. And um, But Joshua, you know, he's no doubt the choice of the 21 is a very wise decision. Joshua um, you know, no one could argue that Joshua wouldn't have known what he was getting them into. Joshua had been one of the original 12 spies that had gone into the land when all of the resistance still remained, you know, 40 some years earlier. So Joshua certainly knew what he was, what he was tasking them with. Now, the interesting thing here is that Joshua makes it clear to them that they're not going to know who gets which land until they return. Uh, that would eliminate, you know, falsifying information or embellishing information or trying to strike secret deals with, you know, some of those 21 that had been gone out, 21 men that had gone out, you know, saying, well, you know, if, if you'll take this and I'll take that. And as you know, without, if, you know, again, the, the lots were going to be cast when they returned. And that was. When, the, when it was going to be decided who gets which of the seven parts. Right now, they're just going out and describing the seven parts. You know, if they had known who was going to get what, you know, there would have been a lot of temptation there. One guy could have said, well, you don't want that land. It isn't any good. When in, when in reality, it's the best land that there is, and he's just trying to downplay it because that's, that's, the, that's the portion that he wants. Um, you know, again, they're, they're um, you know, the, the incentive is is put in place for them to be as honest as possible and describe the land as accurately as they can. I always like the illustration of the, you know, the, the, two, the two kids, you know, and there's only one piece of pie left, and, and somebody says, you know, one person gets to cut the pie in half, but the other person gets to choose which piece they want. That gives the person who's cutting the pie the incentive to be absolutely, you know, cut that thing down the middle as much as possible. Whereas if they were to be able to choose, if the person who was cutting it was also the person who got to choose which piece they wanted, you might end up with like a, you know, a 70-30 split or something like that. You know, we all know what kind of tendencies we have. Verse number 7, we see again that the Levites do not receive a specific inheritance. They are going to be scattered all over the land. They're going to be scattered all over the entire nation. We're you know, again, as I stated earlier, we've been reminded many times that they're, they're, you know, the implication is clear that the priesthood of the Lord is, is better than any land that they could inherit. The opportunity to serve the Lord is, is greater than any earthly possession. Verse number eight, Joshua gives them the instructions and they obey. They, they go out and they, they, they go out and they, they get at it. And, you know, again, a lot of times in, in our scripture, you know, there's so much so much time transpires from one verse to another. I have read on on several occasions that secular history records that this probably took seven months for these 21 men to have gone out and surveyed that land and to 
to have done a you know a thorough analysis and gone all the way up through those mountains and from the, the Sea of Galilee all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, we're not told that in the Bible, but it, it you know it makes sense that it would have taken some time. And you know certainly they wouldn't have had any of the technology and the advantages that we have today. I mean we you know we have motorized vehicles. You know we have aerial photos that we could use to do a, a really good assessment of the land. I know. One of, one of my friends just sent me a link on Google to the, the mountains that we go trout fishing in every year, and, and it's just astonishing what you can do. You can just drill down and, and make it look as though you're actually walking on the trails through the mountains, and you can see all the topography and the different elevations, and it, it is kind of amazing how accurate it is. Um, you know, what they did in seven months, I mean, they wouldn't even have had to have left their house. Uh, you know, if they were if they were doing this survey today, it, it's just, you know, we, we kind of lose sight of the fact of just how far we've come with, with technology. Verse number nine. So they come back and they, they report back to Joshua. You know, another indication that the the journey was probably fairly lengthy was the fact that Joshua tells them to write it down in a book. Um, you know, if in fact the, the, the entire process did, did take seven months, it's understandable that by the time you got back to Joshua, you might have forgotten about some of the things you saw during the first couple of months. I was, I just happened to be reading a story here a week or two ago online, and somebody had made the comment that they had tied a string on their finger to remember something, but then they couldn't remember what the string was for. And I, as I get older, I can relate to that. And I, you know, it's just a reality. And so I, I, you know, I've gotten to the place at work. I got to write everything down. Because people come to me and they ask me about something from just a couple of months ago, and I just don't have a clue. So I, you know, I'm trying to learn and have learned to be a pretty good note taker. Rely less on my memory. Verse number ten. Joshua casts the lots, and the land is divided, and it's assigned. And 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 again, you know, every time we we see this mention of casting lots, we're, we're always told, just like we are there at the end of verse 10, this was all done according, this was done before the Lord. And some of the other verses say according to the Lord. And, you know, it makes some of us uncomfortable to think about what exactly this entailed, you know, what was the casting of lots. But, you know, I don't think we need to be uncomfortable about that at all. What, however they did it, uh, it's, it's always clear that this was, you know, this was the Lord's doing and the Lord was choosing who, who was receiving which land. In verses 11 through 28, we have the description of the land that was given to Benjamin. And, you know, again, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. You know, again, the Bible's clear that God is the one who, who determined this. There's seven brothers that are yet to receive land. And the first portion of land that comes up is given to Benjamin, and it just happens to be that that land is put right next to, right below the land of both Ephraim and Manasseh, which are the two sons of Joseph. And that just doesn't seem like an accident. I mean, that doesn't seem like a coincidence. It seems like the Lord knew knew exactly what he was doing there, but that was very intentional. You know, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you discover that Joseph was the protector of Benjamin. Uh, you know, when, when, when Joseph's brothers came to buy corn and, you know, all that big to do about, you know, throwing one of them into prison and having them come back and bring their father back, 
All those tests were designed for one thing, and Joseph wanted to find out how they were treating Benjamin. He wanted to find out if they were treating Benjamin any better than they had treated him. He wanted to know if they had learned anything after a couple of decades. And he was Benjamin's protector. And so I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, certainly the Lord is in control here. And the Lord puts Benjamin right below the two sons of Joseph because, you know, they, they're they probably going to be, that's going to be the greatest alliance. Verse number 14, we'll just pick out one or two things here in this list of cities. It says, The border was drawn thence and compassed the corner of the sea southward from the hill that lieth before Beth Horon southward. And the goings out thereof were at Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath Jerim, a city of the children of Judah. This was the west quarter. The reference there to the sea in the beginning, in the, in the first part of the verse, that's not the Mediterranean Sea. If, if you have a map in your Bible and you see the land of Benjamin, no part of the land of Benjamin touches the, the, the Mediterranean Sea. It doesn't even come close. And so many believe that there is a reference to the, the Pool of Gibeon. Or if it is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, it's just making mention of the fact that the, the western border of Benjamin runs parallel to the Mediterranean Sea, but doesn't necessarily, it, it doesn't actually touch the Mediterranean Sea. And, you know, it, it, you know, as I stated a week or two ago, probably a couple of times, it does become very difficult and tricky, and I don't know that it's really worth a lot of our attention to try to map out the exact particulars of these, of these you know, these sections of land as it's described at this time. Some of the descriptions as they're given then wouldn't apply to today because geography changes and, and rivers change course and, you know, new mountain ranges are formed. And, and you know, the land is essentially, in, in a lot of ways, very similar today to the way it was 3,000 years ago, but it's not exactly the same. So we, we probably, it's somewhat of an exercise in futility to try to, you know, try to connect all the dots and you know some of these cities are not even in the same location today as they were 3,000 years ago as we saw you know some of these cities like Jericho and AI they are demolished and destroyed and then they're rebuilt and we don't know exactly how close to the original location they're built so you know we're not going to spend a tremendous tremendous amount of time trying to nail down the particulars and, and also because I don't think you'd find it all that particularly interesting all right we are we are done. Does anyone have any comments before we before we're dismissed? Anybody want to add anything? Anyone? All right. We are done for today.